Good afternoon. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor today. I'm so happy to have in the studio to talk with Michael Moores. Michael, welcome Thank to the Thank you program. very much, T. It's great to be here. Thanks for flying in. From, Zipped into Ann Arbor. From Brooklyn. Very exciting. Yeah, I actually Through came the blizzard. From, I, came, I, came, I came from D.C. today, which oh, is good. Okay. Yeah, I've right. been away, So, but normally Brooklyn is home, but not a bad time to not be in Brooklyn. So, yeah. No. Yeah, no, and, no. and so you made it. I made it. Here oh, I am oh, in good. Michigan. And you were in the nation's capital, too. I was. I was, was, I was. this poetry related? Uh, I had a residency for a couple of weeks at a place called Virginia, Virginia Center for the Creative Arts in Amherst, Virginia. So I was down there, and then I went to visit my brother, and then I flew here. So. Oh, oh, that's wonderful. Yes, yeah, so I'm sort of zipping around. And you're good your, to be here. Your brother. Well, it's good to see you. Mm-hmm. And um, what's really exciting, listeners out there, Woo-hoo. this wow, there this it is. is your book, there Michael. It is. This it's like this is your life, Michael Morse. And this is the first time I'm actually seeing. And touching it, it's awesome. <laughs> it's a re- it's a real book. Ru- wow, um, it totally exists. Russ Brakefield um, uh, made sure I I got to see it before we talked, which awesome. is awfully kind of him. Um, wow. And the Canarium Books folks. It yeah. exists. They weren't kidding. They actually published it. That's awesome. It doesn't. It's got a nice heft to it. There's the yeah, cover. No, it's great. They, I mean, I'm so psyched to be with this press. Um, Josh and Nick and Robin and Lynn do such a great job with their books, and they're they're beautiful books. They make beautiful books, and and hopefully this will match up with all the other good stuff that they've been publishing for the last couple of years that they've been around. They, they're awesome. They're great, and they were great to work with. So I'm thrilled. I'm How? having a little moment. I'm I'm quelling <laughs> with my book on the radio. I'm glad you can't see me. I know. He's like he's flipping through it. Everybody, flipping it's through like, it. you can't wow. look away. I know it exists. It's, it's awesome. Oh, well, it's a lovely book. It, it's you. really, it's it's great. Before we go any further, I'm going to read um, 
your bio, you're in town, Michael, to read tomorrow at UMA in the Zell Visiting Writers Series. Uh, you'll be reading with a fellow Canarium writer, Emily Wilson, and you guys will be at UMA uh, Thursday, tomorrow, uh, 5.10 p.m., uh, Helmut Stern Auditorium there in UMA on State Street. Very exciting. And you'll have books in your hands. I and, will. And, and I'm thrilled to read with Emily, too, who's a fantastic poet. So, so it'll be yeah. a, a great... A, a great hour or so or poems. She'll be great. I'm going to try to keep up, but we'll see. It'll be good, but I'm stoked. <laughs> all right, all right. I'm going to read your short bio now. Here's the bio. My, here it is. Michael Moores has published poems in various journals, including the American Poetry Review, A Public Space, Agni, Field, Jubilat, Plowshares, The Hat, The Iowa Review, The Literary Review, Tin House, and Spinning Jenny, and in the anthologies Broken Land, Poems of Brooklyn, Starting Today, A Hundred Poems for Obama's First 100 Days, and The Best American Poetry 2012, a recipient of residencies from the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown, the McDowell Colony, and Yaddo. Michael lives in Brooklyn, New York, and teaches at the Ethical Culture Fieldston School. You got it. It's a mouthful. It's hard to handle. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I do. But it's very, it's, it, it's, it's, it sounds it's very, very ethical. ethical, right? It sounds very ethical and moral. We're on moral high ground here. No. It sounds like a good place though. Is it true? Is it's it a fantastic, auspicious? Yeah, place? It's, a, it's a fantastic place. Really good place to teach. Um, my students are, it's a, it's a private school in New York City. So the kids are kind of motivated. They want to be there. They want to study. They're eager to learn. So they're a great group to teach. And, and I've been there. We were talking about this on our way in today, but I've been there for 20 years, which kind of freaks me out that I've been anywhere for 20 years. So Time is just a strange. It's going. It's a strange quantity, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to yeah. reckon with. Yeah. And these are high school students they are high that school you students, work with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And are you, um, are you working with them with poems and, and writing or, or literature? Or, or so all of all of the above. Um, the one really cool thing about the program is um, it's sort of a standard. You know, ninth and tenth grade they take a year long course. So I have kids for a year when I teach them at that level, and then when they're juniors and seniors, they can take semester long electives. So that's when we can kind of get a little funky. And I can I can teach a poetry class. I teach a film and lit class. There's a literature of war class. There's a Images and Words class where I do a lot of poetry and work with somebody who's a printer and we have the kids in the art studio one day a week and then three days a week they're in the classroom. So you can sort of develop a lot of stuff on your own, which is which is great. And it sounds so, like they're making as you know, books as a teacher, too. It's, yeah, they actually, yeah, they do, they do some book project type stuff or, you know, more oh, chapbook and sort of combinations of specific images with words. But um, yeah, it's great. That's great. And, and Michael, where, where are you from? Where did you grow up? I grew up, I'm a child of the suburbs. I grew up on Long Island, about 20 miles outside of New York City in a town called Roslyn, which is on the North Shore of Long Island. Um, and, and when did you know you were a writer? Were you always writing as about a About two weeks ago. Oh, it's... Yeah. <laughs> When I held this book held from this Canarian book Books in my hand, ago. the book is called, I am remiss for not saying this right away, Void and Compensation. Yeah. And we, and we can talk all about that title in a little bit. I but, think we should. Yeah. But um, how did I know? When did it happen? I think um, I, had a, I had a sixth grade teacher who uh, used to sing songs to us and actually used to read us poems. And I kind of, you know, she was 
she was a tough egg. She she didn't take any guff from the kids. She could be kind of stern, but something else happened when she would sort of sit at the piano and sing to us and when she read poems to us, like a completely different person got revealed. And I kind of feel like that was maybe my first sort of intro to how poetry can literally transform somebody, you know, from this sort of stern teacher to somebody who kind of melted a little bit. Um, so she kind of got me into poems. And then I think, you know, as the angsty teenage years, over, you know, came up, I think... Uh, I pretty much had a crush on a girl who lived about two blocks away from me, and I started writing poems in my journal, thinking that I might give them to her, but it didn't work out. But still, I can thank uh, I can thank one Hillary Miller for being my initial muse. Thank you, Hillary. Hillary Miller and Mrs. Nassau in sixth grade. So yeah, that's probably where it where it kicked in. I guess where it all started. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you said you had a, a journal, so you already you had. A, a book you were carrying around with you. Yeah, or, or I, the... I think I'm pretty sure that. Um, in ninth grade, we had a teacher who made us keep journals, and um, you know, rather than actually doing what she wanted us to do in the journal, which was writing about you know what we were reading and keeping sort of a log of of what we were doing for homework, you know, it sort of became part that. But then I would just sort of start to write stuff down um, on my own, and then I sort of started keeping a separate notebook. So I think, yeah, it's probably common for a lot of people to start that way. But that's that's probably where it kicked in, I think. And so these notebooks started. Yeah. There's not a whole collection. I don't know where they are. It's kind of tragic, actually. I wish I still had them, but yeah. Or actually, maybe I don't. <laughs> maybe I don't want to see what I wrote to Hillary Miller way back when. I don't know. Maybe they're in the family somewhere. You know, my brothers. They could. They could be hanging on to them for blackmail. Oh. They're gonna. They're gonna threaten to to release the material. But yeah. So. But I think that's. Yeah, I think that's where it started. The whole sort of journal thing and having a sort of quiet space in which to sort of reflect and take stock on. On things, because things, you know, you know how unpredictable and crazy the world is. And I think when when I was growing up and trying to figure it all out, still trying to figure it all out, I think the notebook was a place to go to where I could sort of calm myself down, take stock of things. And I think that's always been, um, writing's always kind of been that kind of thing for me, a way of sort of slowing down, going against the normal tide of things, slowing time down a little bit, that kind of stuff. So, How, how do you see, how is it, so that's what writing also remains is, is still for you that is that um in your pro like are you using notebooks too for your writing process now you know it's it's interesting because um once i finished the edits on the book which was fairly recently um and the book was done i sort of started new poems and for the first time in a long time i went back to writing longhand in a notebook and i hadn't done that in years for you know a lot of the poems I think they started on a notepad or paper, but then they pretty much quickly got transferred to computers. And, and then I was actually composing a lot of stuff on the computer. But recently I went back to working in longhand, which is great. And I love it. And the pacing of it feels completely different from working on a computer. Why do you think that happened? Yeah, you know, I, I'm so tired of looking at screens and devices. I sort of was like, you know what, I'm starting over. I have no idea really what my new theme is going to be, what my direction is going to be. And so it felt kind of right to just go back to paper and go back to paper. Yeah. To so, go back to paper. Go back to paper. Old school. Old school. I'm a Luddite, that's why. <laughs> I um, hear you. But, but seriously, there's something about the pacing of, of doing something yeah. by hand that I think is, 
maybe slows my mind down a little bit. Um, the only danger is that, you know, I write like a four-year-old, so my, my, my handwriting is pretty awful. So I just have to make sure I can go back and read it. But, <laughs> well, then you can have like surrealism or something on your true. side. Like you could see what like, is this, this word? Au- automatic writing. Why am I writing in French <laughs> in the middle of my notebook? That's true. How exciting. <laughs> Congratulations about that. But, so, and so how long, so for Void and Compensation, the, the book, um, is structured. It has different sections. Yep. Um, how long was this in the making, like the, the making of this book? And you, you mentioned that the edits, like that seems like it was a process too. Yeah. And maybe we can talk about that later, but for, what's, you know, when was the first poem in Void and Compensation? When did that surface? And there, I mean, to be honest, there are a couple, I had one manuscript um, that I worked on for a number of years after grad school. I, I, I went to the Iowa Writers Workshop for graduate school, and I graduated from there in '92. Um, and I started a manuscript shortly after I left there that I worked on for about probably eight years or so. Um, and that's still in a drawer that didn't really go anywhere. I mean, there were some published poems in there, but it wasn't really coalescing into something that felt like a book. So, um, I mean, I sent it out in contests and did that whole thing that poets do. Um, there are a couple of poems that I think didn't quite fit in with that collection, and they sort of became the genesis of the next collection of this collection. So literally, I've been working on some of the poems in this book are probably, you know, 12, 11, 10 years old, if I'm honest about it. And then they've been reworked considerably over that period of time. So, But it's I'm a slow worker, and it's taken me a long time to get this done. I, I sort of laugh when people tell me, oh, I've been working on this book for five years or I've been working on these poems for three years and I'm like dude I've been working on these for like over a decade so <laughs> it's it's been slow and part of that is the is the job and I've been teaching high school and it's hard to sort of get the time in and the headspace to sort of make it work um, at least for me not not a great multitasker but I've been working on these poems for a long time so it's it's nice to actually yeah this is it's very touching to actually come into the studio and see the book because here it is so and and the the title, mm-hmm. Michael, how was that also a long time coming, or is that something? It seems like the Simone Veil uh, epigram in the beginning yeah. of the book mm-hmm. may have something to do with absolutely. That. And 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 I have totally yeah. stolen, um, unabashedly stolen my title from Simone Veil. Um, Void and compensation is a section in a larger book called Gravity and Grace, where she's sort of exploring ideas about religion and God. Um, and so I literally borrowed the title from, from a section of her book because I found her writing pretty inspiring. And I probably sort of started reading her around 2005, 2006 or so. And so, you know, I sort of knew that sort of clicked in that I wanted to do something with this concept of avoid and compensation. And having gone through uh, a period of, you know, sort of a, a major life shift and transition, a loss, the thought was, how do you then fill that space? How do you fill that gap? How do you make an absence turn into a presence? And that's sort of what the whole concept of the book is. It's it's probably pretty elegiac in its tonalities and, and where it goes. So I think that was a big influence. And Simone Weil, um, you know, she uh, her writing sort of addresses those things a lot. Uh, in terms of attention, um, and oftentimes she's critical of how we fill the voids, I think, in our life. So, um, yeah, so she was definitely an early influence on the book. And like I said, I stole the title from her. So yeah. I owe it all to her. Tip, tip, tip of the hat to yeah. her. And, mm-hmm. um, and thanks for actually saying her name, because I think I've been 
reading her for so long, but never actually talking to anyone about her. (laughs) So Simone Bay. I'm pretty sure. And I hear that, you know, I hear lots of different pronunciations well, of it, but that's, I okay. think that's it. Well, good thing it's not a call-in show today. Yes. <laughs> no, check, your, check your everybody. oracles, check Google, <laughs> check the oracle. So today on the program, Michael Moores is here. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got the Liz behind the glass. We'll be right back after the short break. Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, glad you did. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. Today, Michael Moores is here in the studio. Um, um, that was so soothing. <laughs> was I know. Um, can you say why you picked this Keith Jarrett? Um, yeah, we were, we were talking um, before we came on the air about certain influences musically. And um, I mean, jazz isn't a huge influence, but then again... Um, you know, one of the early poems in the book has a reference to Thelonious Monk. Um, I'm typically taken by people who take standards, songs that kind of exist in one way or another, one way, shape, or form, and then sort of have their own, put their own imprint on it, have their own sort of thumbprint on it, change the thumbprint of the actual song, and somehow have this classic rendition of something that, that you know, they're improvising a little bit. It has their it has their stylistic signature on it. And so I think Jarrett and uh, Thelonious Monk um, are two pianists who I like for that, for that very reason. They're reworking of things. Do you yeah. see that you might have, a, like, do you have a relationship with reworking things, like working maybe in myth or... Um, uh, I mean, I sort of feel like, yeah... Um, like as a living writer, I love that that's our title. <laughs> I'm so glad to be living. Um, I'm, but and I, writing, I, hallelujah. I, exactly. <laughs> and I do, I do, I do think that there is, um, look, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't pretend that I'm going to be opening up any new topics or subject matter or material for any readers. Right. I mean, it's all sort of talked about. We could, we, you and I could sit here and come up with a list of the things that poems are about. And it would probably, you know, we could probably come up with about eight to 10 things that most people end up covering. Right. And so, you know, being, being original is more ends up being a stylistic and a musical thing as opposed to content or perhaps, you know, maybe even material. I don't know if that makes sense. But it seems to me that as a poet, we're constantly having a dialogue with people who've come before us, you know, um, 
And I don't Emily I, Dickinson. Yeah, I love I love Dickinson, and and you know I love Elizabeth Bishop. I love Wallace Stevens. I don't I don't purport to write like those people, but I but I certainly were was influenced by them and sort of tried to develop an ear for what they were doing. And then somehow or other, I'm probably a hodgepodge of of all those things. So that idea of going back and reworking things that are already there feels. It feels very germane to the whole writing process for con- me, anyway. You're so. connecting to it because yeah. they're like sort of in your writing family. Yeah, and it's 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 bigger than it's bigger than one individual. You know, it's a whole big collective. It's a big world. I, I feel very small. You know, in the face of most things in the world, whether they're sort of whether I'm out in nature or in the physical world, or whether I'm actually reading a book, and that's fine. I, I like feeling small, and feeling connected to the to the ones you know who've come before me. So feeling part. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I don't want to. Se- well, what were you going to say, Michael? No, no, I'm good. Okay. Yeah. No, I don't. I don't want to separate you for this from this book any longer. Will you read a poem? <laughs> I would love to. Um, I'll read. Uh, you know, based on what we were just talking about, um, the first poem in the book, I think it sort of fiddles with that notion of, of taking something that you've inherited and then trying to rework it or trying to sort of come up with some angle or take on it. And uh, the, the poem is called um, Karaoke Genesis. Um, it's actually, it's interesting because I'm, I'm thinking about this now that I'm going to start reading from the book. All of these poems were originally called Void and Compensation. And then there was sort of a parenthetical subtitle. And so, you know, in, when I sent these poems out to magazines and they first started getting published, all the poems said Void and Compensation. Then there's a parenthesis with some subtitle in it. So, and we just kind of felt... Uh, the, the Canarium Hive and I, when we were thinking about edits, that it looked kind of silly to have void and compensation on every single page. So that becomes an umbrella for the book. And then the subtitles, I think, become, um, you know, more of individual poems that fit under that larger umbrella of void and compensation. So. But that explains why structurally you kept mm-hmm. the parentheses that yeah. around the titles. Yeah. yeah. I like, I like the idea and, and who knows if it works or not. Y'all we'll, we'll see from, from any readers that, that, you know, read it, uh, whether or not it holds up. But I like the idea of all these things being part of a collective larger And the section issue. titles yeah. are also void yeah. and com- compensation. Right. Kind of as a reminder that, you know, that it was- Hey, it's all under the umbrella kind of thing. So we'll see. But, but anyway, that's a, I digress. Um, so this is karaoke Genesis. And um, I guess the only note I would say is that there's a reference to um, um, an expression, empty orchestra. And that's sort of a loose translation of what karaoke means in, in Japanese. It's, it's two words that are kind of made into a little portmanteau. They're smushed together, and it's empty orchestra. So that's, that's what karaoke actually means. Portmanteau. So, right. You and Lydia Davis. <laughs> Thanks for putting me in her company. I love you, but, too. But hey, without right, further ado, right, shut up and read the, the poem. poem. <laughs> okay, here we go. Karaoke Genesis. Since when did keeping things to ourselves help us to better remember them? We need tutorials from predecessors. To restore what's missing makes a science of equating like with like or touching small pebbles on a larger mental abacus. We hitch a memory of order to ourselves. From rotating bodies in space comes wind by which we're buffeted, cooled, or graced. The sun warms both the sunflower and the angel with whom we might wrestle. We get some lyrics from a higher power, and then we act on or for each other. 
In calculated reunions of broken parts, the latter must always feel the former, inherit both the track and the turn. A situation like an empty orchestra. And when we try to sing above it, into it, and even in our singing are mistaken, if pitch is something sought and never pure, if ladder sounds like something we can climb, as opposed to where we find ourselves more recently in our relations, in time, having been left or starting our leave-taking, something happened. Someone followed someone. Someone had, even held, our formers. We're doppelgangers, saintly or undone. Pick a song and listen for your cue. Here's the void. Now sing some compensation. Thanks. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. So you're not kidding when you say the void in compensation uh, yeah. is at the core. This is the like a touchstone. I think so. I think so. Absolutely. That idea of, you know, so many times we fill with, or, you know, we, we have a sense of, you know, we go through something, we lose something, we experience something, and often we try to counteract it or make up for some loss. Um, we're constantly filling voids or trying to, I think. So that feels, yeah, and it, it sort of feels like a touchstone throughout the entire book. Some poems are direct elegies for people that I've lost, for relationships that, that were, that no longer exist, um, familial things as well, but yeah, but all all, all under that umbrella, thanks to Simone and her title. Yeah. yeah. For you, when you, because you were talking about how it feels like a book, like this collection of poems as they were co coalescing mm -hmm. and coming together. Yeah. Was that sort of when you wrote that poem, did you feel like this is like, this is the, this is the first poem? Like, do you, when did you know that? Yeah, it's a good question. And I, I wish my memory were a lot sharper than it is. Um, I think, again, I, you know, I wrote, I wrote some poems for a couple of years where I was sort of trying to figure out what direction to go in off of the first manuscript that didn't turn into a book. That, that first manuscript were mostly a series of dramatic monologues where I had a character named Quo as in status quo, and I kind of stole that from John Berryman, who was somebody that I loved when I was in college and in grad school. Um, and so when I was shifting gears away from dramatic monologues and feeling like I was speaking more as an authorial I, you know, or that this, this speaker, you know, and, and, and the I, you know, Emily Dickinson, what is that line she says about it? it's not me in the poems, it's a supposed I. <laughs> I guess that distance is always there, but I think for me... When I started to write this series of poems, it felt like a more, you know, I, I wasn't I wasn't hiding behind a mask as much. It was sort you of me well, being a speaker, you were right? Closer. Right. So, and I, I think that um, I don't really remember what the first poem that I wrote was, where I was sort of like, oh, this this sort of feels it, like this is this is a collection that's coming up, you know, like this is this is where I'm going with it. This is the theme I'm going to explore. I think it was sort of a, in concert, um, really reading Simone Weil and then sort of thinking that hey, maybe some of these poems sort of fit with this idea. But it was actually interesting when when we were going through the editing process of, with that book. Um, Nick Twemlow, who's a fantastic poet and filmmaker, and and was sort of my primary editor on this book. He was like, you know, dude, this is this is 
is the first poem in the book. I had it, you know, buried somewhere in like the first section. So I needed another set of eyes to help me look at it and see it. But I think he made a great choice or a great suggestion to move that up because it does sort of set the tone for the for what follows. Did he say why? Did Nick say? Why? You know, I think I think he probably felt um, that it just sort of set the tone for the book. It was the introduction that I mean, here's the void and compensation that the title, you know, the titular reference, and I think it sort of sets the table for what's coming. Um, you know, and what we talked about earlier too, this idea of sort of predecessors and, and writing in, into something that you feel like you're, you know, a small part of something bigger or collective. I think he just sort of felt like that was a good choice. And once he sort of said that, I was you, like, you yeah. felt it. Yeah, as totally. Well. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it can go either way, can't it? And if you, you hadn't felt that way, so. I think then I you think would have so. said, no, it's. Yeah. And, you know, part of the issue too, I think is, um, I've been working with these poems for so long that sometimes I feel like I'm too close to them. I, I don't have any objective, you know, I don't have that objective distance that maybe an editor has where they can sort of suggest what sounds good or what groups together. I mean, you know, you'll, you'll look, you know, the, obviously those of you on the radio, you can't see this, but the acknowledgments page in the book is like a mile long. And it's because I've had all these people that I've needed their eyes and I've needed their suggestions about or how, to, how to group it soul? and collect it. Well, but that's true, but you have a lot of help along the way. So, um, but yeah, that's, that's not an, you know, that, that episode where Nick was like, Hey, this should be the first poem. Um, you know, you need that after a while when you're used to looking at these things and you're sort of spacing them out on the floor and trying to think about how do I put these pieces of paper together in order and it's it's hard to do it's difficult to do to find that arc in a, in a poetry collection why were there sections because um, was it part of the spacing on the or was it always there that there were sort of divisions I, I think I had the idea that I wanted to have sections I mean it's not um you know, I'm not tooting my own horn here. I, th I don't think that I'm, when I say that the poems are difficult and they're kind of dense, I think that they're they're tricky. They're not easy. They're not necessarily easy to follow at times. I, I jump around a lot. I think I have associative leaps, etc. So I think that I needed to have I needed to let you know you all rest while you read these. You need a break. So so after you know about ten or eleven poems per section, that's just sort of how it evolved. But I think that those break points are important, and just as the white space is important on the page, that the break points in a collection are pretty important to allow certain poems to sort of resonate and rub up against each other and then have gaps between the other sections. Well, before we take this short break, Michael, mm -hmm. we should remind everyone that tomorrow you're reading at UMA at the Helmut Stern Auditorium with Emily Wilson, her book also with Canarium uh, Books out again this month, hot off the presses, both yeah. these books, The Great Medieval Yellows, uh, Michael's book, Void and Compensation. Um, you'll be reading poems from the book at 510 Thursday at UMA. Um, okay, let's take a short break and we'll be right back to hear more with Michael Moores today on Living Writers. We'll be right back.
You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Michael Morse is here um, in the studio. His book from Canarium Books, just fresh, fresh to the world, Void and Compensation, um, the collection, 12 years in the making. Yeah. Um, and these poems, they're, they've burst into the world now. Well, well, they've been in the world. It's in, a slow in, burst. In different, well, well, they've been in the world in different ways. Right. Like we've right, right, we've right. obviously like like been out in the world in in the journals, but it is different when you see them. Like you said, like they're neighbors. They're next to each other. They're placed. Mm-hmm. They're they're within these. They have this umbrella of void and compensation, where yeah. it's it's different to hold yeah. the physical artifact in your hands, isn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, this is you know this is. Yeah, like we said, a long time coming, and it's nice to see them all sort of sitting next to each other, nestled in together. So, yeah, it's pretty great. Will you read another one for sure. us? Sure. Um, I will read. Because um, you oh, said you had three or four in your head. Oh, my you were God. Like, I mean, not, not that I know by heart, but yeah, I, got, I mean, this is the problem. Now that you get the book in front of you, it's like... How long do we have? Can I read the whole thing? Poem two. I got two. time. <laughs> right. Living writers, you know, and then you might have to come knock me out of the chair. So I mean, well, um, that'll be the sports uh, department. Exactly. We'll be in soon. You can check me out of the way. Um, all right, I'll read. Um, you know, we were we were talking earlier about how some of these poems um, they have the sort of an elegiac tendency, and this is more of a direct elegy. One I'm going to read called uh, Simsum. And this comes from, this is a notion that comes out of the Kabbalah uh, and sort of mystic Judaism and this idea that um, if God is everywhere, then God has to sort of, had to withdraw a little bit in order to make a space in which God could then create the world. So if God is this presence that's everywhere, there has to be this withdrawal in order to make some, to make a space for this thing the world to come about. So that sort of concept of void and compensation then comes up there as well, I think. And so I was intrigued by that notion, that concept of Simpson. And then um, uh, I guess the, the narrative of the poem is, for some reason, there's a lot of Alaska imagery that's in here and I don't really know why that happened um, but that's in here but the but the primary story were you there I went there when I was a, I went there when I was in, in high school oh so yeah. it was something yeah. in your, something your subconscious it's, it's, that yeah. was surfacing I, and I think it has to do with this idea of, of some sort of you know again a place that's larger than me um, wild untamed sort of um, maybe even just symbolically having that sort of notion of being a place that's away from us even though it's part of our country etc but it's also you know maybe perhaps the wildest 
space that we have uh, within our country. The bigger story uh, it, the poem sort of deals with is um, when my when my mother was uh, was terminally ill. Um, we I tape recorded a conversation with her, and that comes in at the end of the of the of the poem. So there, it remembers that it remembers um, her. It's sort of it's an elegy basically to her. So um, yeah. So I'll read I'll read that. Um, Simsum. Years go by without your mother's voice, without her on the other end of a voice. Perpetual Yom Kippur. You don't practice. You fast. You've got a bone chip in your pocket and a song to pick. She was young and beautiful with her satchel of wishes and cloves. She preferred cocktails over weeping, wisteria for the lock, stock, and barrel, thin graphite for a building's roman, and then a child. Any kind motherings a tsimsum, a contraction of self, a withdrawal that allows for making, a falling back into nothing you can name. Put a June bug in a cup and call it Petrarch. Make of yourself a mother you've read about in guidebooks, a McKinley, a Denali. But what if the child's too early, if it might die? How could she not withdraw herself again and wait for you to be a harbinger of yourself, hold you only when it was clear you'd stay? Spring sprung. Your thoughts drift today from penance to the barbecue and back again. When the rain hits the Weber kettle, it tolls. Despite a freezer full of wild salmon, sometimes for her you'll fast and watch yourself not eat. You watch yourself walk until you stumble under the weight of watching and hear her words when her last voice went out and came to rest on a fine filament called tape. Okay, turn that off. Thank you. Sure. And, you know, this, I think, you know, one thing I didn't mention in there that's that's biographical, and I don't, I don't know if it's that important to the poem, but it, it sort of, in my eyes, it feels like a direct reference. Um, there was literally, you know, I was, I was born... Uh, three months early, which is why I'm so messed up, became a poet. <laughs> no, I was born three months early, so there was this sense, you know, back in 1966 that I might not make it. So my mom didn't want to see me because she was so wigged out at the prospect that I wasn't, that I might not live. So that whole idea of, the whole idea of mothering and being a mother and, and withdrawing from the self in order to make this other thing, that's one aspect of it. But then having to withdraw a second time when you weren't sure if your child was going to make it or not feels like a pretty devastating kind of moment. So I think the poem plays with all those ideas of what it means to sort of uh, make a space to, to fill in the world. Uh, so, yeah. So that's, those, are, those are some of the impulses that are behind Glad, poem, glad so. you made it, Michael. Yeah. Me too. I mean, speaking on the very literal <laughs> level there. So can I ask about the, the last line too? Like with the turn that off? Yeah, literally it was the, la it's the last line on the tape that, that when I was interviewing my mother, we had talked for about a half hour, 40 minutes and she was getting tired and she was tired of talking and she literally, you know, she sort of half answered a question and, and just said, okay, turn that off. So she needed to withdraw. She needed to take a break from the interview. So, and those are the last, yeah, that's the last thing that's on that interview tape that I have. So, so it yeah. had to be the last for this poem too, yeah. this yeah. analogy. Yeah, yeah. 
Definitely. So working with this idea of like being lost and found Mm -hmm. with elegy, Mm there's, you, I, I don't, and I don't, I don't want to keep talking about teaching too much because today is really about this book of poems and teaching is your, your other hat. But in Iowa, it seems like you've mm-hmm. opened that up for people. Like when you, I'm wondering if when you were working on this as part of your process and you were maybe a, a obsessed with it or thinking of it a mm-hmm. lot, yeah. is that why when you were teaching in Iowa over the summer workshops that you maybe open that up to your students? Yeah, or maybe I'm even getting that wrong. No, maybe no, you no. didn't there's, teach a class. No, like I, I have. I've, I've, taught, uh, I've taught a class on elegy called Lost and Found, and it's basically about you know, writing elegies. And this is, this is uh, for the Iowa Summer Writing Festival where I, where I teach every summer. And this is a class that I taught there years ago on elegy when I was in the middle of sort okay. of writing these poems. So no, it's totally germane to, to that. And I think, um, again... Um, that whole idea of how do you deal with loss, with transition? How do you begin to approach that? How do you begin to address that? And so it's this, the elegy, it seems to me, offers this very sort of, um, it's, it's, it's difficult. It's a contradiction in terms. I mean, how do you, how do you, how do you fill an absence or how do you use absence to make presence? And that's what the elegy is all about. I mean, in a sense, the elegy is really all about what you leave for the living. I mean, if people are gone, they're gone, and you write with them in, in mind and in memory, but you're really sort of giving somebody who's here a sort of artifact, a token, a memento of that person, of that thing, of that essence that's no longer there. So it's this great and I think very appealing contradiction that, that elegiac poetry gives us. It, it makes an absence into a physical, tactile, tangible thing, which is the poem, you know, an elegy. So. And, you, and you said you've written many of them, like you were sort of inhabiting this space for a while. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's it's actually hard to break away from it. You know, I think the older I get, the feel like the more loss happens. But it, but it also, you know, I, I do find comfort in that or in addressing that and again it makes me feel connected and linked and so yeah there are a couple of elegies in here there's an elegy to um, one of my teachers uh, who was in Iowa City as a guest when I was out there uh, who passed away and there's an elegy to another poet Alan Grossman in the book so I think that it's something that I keep coming back to not just with relationships that I've lost or family members that I've lost but also people that I've you know been with in other periods and times in my life and sort of remembering them Um, so and with the the elegy and working in it as a form or as a structure, mm-hmm. um, do you feel that then it's there is something that's found about it? Because if you're looking pairing that idea of being lost and found, yeah, or do you, is that genuine? I think so. I mean, it's weird. Like I think the whole. Um, uh, Peter Sachs, who's a who's a who's a, a writer. Um, wrote a fantastic book about the history of the elegy. And so we, one of the things he talks about in this book is he talks about how the sort of, at least in Western culture, the sort of, um, I guess, founding myth that sort of spells out where elegy comes from is Apollo and Daphne, right? So Apollo is chasing Daphne. He's desirous of her. He's totally, you know, misbehaving. He's being a bad boy. He's chasing after Daphne, who puts up this cry to her father, who's a river god, to save her from Apollo. Um, And she gets transformed into the laurel tree. And so Apollo then, he can't have the girl, but he takes the wreath, the laurel wreath, which is the thing you see on marathon runners and is given as a consolation prize of sorts or is a gift. The laurel takes the place of what was actually desired. So it's not quite as good as the real thing. 
right? If yes. you're Apollo, anyway. Right. right. Um, if you're Daphne, it's better. But that whole <laughs> idea about being consoled, you get a consolation. It's not quite as good as, as having the thing present, uh, but it's, you know, it's, 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 it's the thing that you're left with. You make do with what you have, and you create this thing that becomes compensation for that, for that loss. So if that makes sense. No, it does. And it's also, it feels like in a way, maybe the process of the elegy is this withdrawal where you're trying to, uh, I don't know, so that you can make a different way to, so, so you make something to have, I guess. And then, you know, the poem does become whether, you know, it, it cannot ever take the place of, you know, a real presence, but, but it is a consolation prize of sorts, I guess, if it's done well. (laughs) So, Uh yeah, yeah. No, that is that is really interesting to think about, yeah. and um, and so with this book, it, it's um, it feels like there's the the timber of it when it is complicated. So you're saying that's part of the reason you have sections and you have like this this space for the reader. Um, I I love that. I think that like to have like you're sort of, um, but it's narrative too. There's lots of there's yeah. There's definitely uh, narrative in there. Um, uh, there was a, a very nice um, review that came out on NPR.org, a sort of preview of poems that are coming out in 2015. And, and the, the writer in there um, gave a nice little shout out for the book. And he said that uh, they're sort of grown up poems written by a jittery cameraman. And I kind of love that because, you know, the whole jittery idea of looking at something, being distracted, going to a next thing, having these things, trying Leaping. to make connections okay. between things, associative leaps. Yeah. So I thought, I'll take that. I'll be a jittery cameraman. Huh. Yeah, huh. so. I guess that's the energy too, isn't it? A type of. Uh, I hope so. I energy. mean, I hope that. I hope that's in there. Yeah. Let's take a short break, okay. and then we'll come back. Um, today on Living Writers, Michael Moore's is here. He'll be reading at UMA with Emily Wilson tomorrow, Thursday at five ten p.m. Um, you've got Living Writers. I'm T Hetzel. We'll be right back with more. <laughs> Yeah. 
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Michael Moores is here. He's paging through his book now, fresh from the hot off the press from (laughs) Canarium Books, Void and Compensation. Um, We've been talking to Elegy. and I think that's actually like it's these are these are brave things to write. I'm I'm curious too that you say that once you start writing them, also it's a it's a frame, a welcoming mm-hmm. f- frame. Mm. And so is it is it sort of is that part of your new work too? The new project, the new poems that are coming? Because you said you, you started off by telling us you were in Virginia, yeah, writing. It's true. Trying. Um, I'm not really sure what my new project's going to be. I have like three or four different things that are sort of floating around. Um, some of them having to do. I guess one project is sort of. I wouldn't. Faith based isn't quite the, the best way of describing it, but it has to do with, um, as opposed to sort of a large godlike figurehead looking over everything it's sort of thinking about god on a much smaller level and this is funny because we're talking about i think of you know god comes up in one of the poems we've talked about religion a little bit here we've talked about simone Weil. i'm totally like a secular jew from long island like i'm so not religious but i think that poetry then becomes you know a religion of sorts i guess or at least something that's spiritual for me so yeah yeah. Um, so that's, that's sort of one project that I'm working on, but really it's, it's totally up in the air. And, um, you know, what I'm working on of late is, it's actually really fun. I mean, we were talking before about how, you know, I'm writing longhand again. I had, I've been typing poems for a long time and I went back to writing in a notebook. So being in a generative phase where I really don't know what I'm doing or quite where I'm going and writing longhand again has been fun. So it's been nice to you know, get this, get this project done and, and to move on to other things. Are yeah. you, are you starting to like, do you just sort of sit down and then start writing or are you in the back of your mind, like, like just feeling open to new projects or how is it, or is it cause in a way, I mean, from the title void and compensation, sometimes the grand openness of yeah. what is the next yeah project and that 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 openness you know can be terrifying i think i mean i think a lot of times um i don't i i very rarely sit down with a prescribed notion of what i'm going to write i think once a project and a theme or a certain kind of you know mood or tone kicks in then i'll sit down and maybe some more ideas will have will come up in terms of how to make things coalesce or how to make certain poems sort of talk to each other but i think that in a generative stage i like i mean i have to do things i have to sort of trick myself i'll do i'll i'll do weird little games where i'll give myself um i'll take you know, I'll take two random texts and I'll take a clause out of one sentence in one text and then I'll take the second clause out of a different text and I'll smush them together and then I'll give myself eight words and then that I have to use in the span of 10 minutes and I'll write. I'll use that sort of, you know, combined line to sort of generate something and then see where I go. And more often than not, it's a complete mess. It's totally wackadoodle, but it's fun. I mean, it's sort of, it's a way of playing a game where you can sort of trick your mind to sort of focus on things and see what emerges as opposed to having a prescribed notion of what's going to come out in the writing, which I think doesn't work for me. It might work for some people. I'm sure it does work for a lot of people, but um, I sort of have to, if I treat it more like a game and a puzzle, uh, rather than a prescribed idea, I think it ends up working out better. Or at least I'll discover something that can then filter into something else that I'm thinking about. Or, you know, we all do this, right? We all have the life events or emotions that are sort of swimming around in our heads as we go through the day. And those those creep in. It's hard to keep those away. Um, but I think the sort of 
objectifying or the, the sort of game playing notion of getting things started has always been kind of important to me. Especially, I would say, yeah, in the last 10 or 15 years of, of writing, for sure. And so there is a sense of play. Yeah, serious play, but definitely play. Yeah, definitely play. I mean, it has to be. I mean, that's um, that's why I love it. I mean, you know, I, I worry sometimes, like, oh, is this, is this book too heavy? You know? But I think that I feel like there are moments of play in here, and I do feel like that that whole notion of, the whole, my whole notion of poetry is one of serious play. And, and music, too. You want to be able to make music, so... No. And I think also with the leapiness, uh, associate, associative leaps like mm-hmm. that, I think is part of that, like yeah. having that, that freedom to mm-hmm. do that, yeah. not feeling locked in. Absolutely. Yeah. Agreed. Will you read us another poem, Michael? Sure. I will read, um, I think I'm going to read, I'll, I'll read one that I think is a little more, well, I wouldn't say it's funny, but at least it's playful in that way that we've been talking about, um, poems being playful um i just need to find it uh okay so this poem i was reading about um the uh the north pole (laughs) uh and this idea that um so in in 1909 robert peary claims that he's the first person to reach the north pole and he's done that by foot. He's on foot or by sled, right? Uh, and then Richard Byrd claims to have been the first to have flown over the North Pole um, years later in 1926. And for some reason, I don't know where this came from, but I had this notion that Byrd, because he was flying <laughs> over the pole, but didn't get to actually put his feet down on it, that he might have felt like he got gypped a little bit. You know, In my imagination, I'm sort of imagining Byrd feeling like, oh, I flew over it, but I didn't get to touch it kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. So yeah. so so that's where this poem comes from. And then also there's there's a much more sort of um, you know, banal kind of thing that, that, that prompted the poem too. I have um my grandfather was an admiral in the Navy and I have uh, a set of his admiral stars that would be on his sort of you know, on his epaulet on his shoulder. Yeah. But but they're literally they're these they're these silver stars that are sort of like a pin. Um and so I have those and, and every now and then would sort of take them out and look at them and think about them and think about him. And then somehow when I was thinking about Bird and Perry, uh, then I took the, the stars out and they come up in here, even though, you know, they're, they're totally related to Bird and not something familiar. But Are you going to be wearing them at the reading tomorrow? I will not be in full <laughs> naval regalia tomorrow. Sorry. It's such a great idea, though. Maybe, Maybe for there's got to be a shop in Ann Arbor where I can go get Maybe an you've got some time. Oh, my God. Would people freak out if I showed up? That would be pretty funny. All right, so this tomorrow is... Tomorrow at UMA 510. <laughs> this is a poem called What the Admiral Saw from the Air. Suppose you're just a little north of the question, a few degrees east of circumstance, miles west of the Latka breakfast. What if the southerlies deflect the river project and a nor'easter toys with your scavenger hunt? Do you make a game out of longitude? Do you sing a little song of latitude, make up a mantra called locale and let it resonate out loud and in the head? Here's what bird does. He keeps his admiral stars in a little box lined with blue velvet, imitation velvet, a little northeast of the real deal, a little west of the real McCoy. He takes them out from time to time, lifts up the lid and reacquaints himself with pewter. And he'll talk to Peary out loud. You walked where I merely flew. Your best friend is a dog named Perimeter. 
He dreams of Piri on his sled of spent dogs, wrapped in a pair of pure greys, cloak and sky, sees him stop and skyward raise his hands. Bird sits with his boxed stars and welcomes the white coats of ceremony, the sharp lapels and the smell of starch, the pants that have a crease he calls true north. But when he puts his hand upon his chest, his charts are all for naught, the day haywire, his heart a compass needle gone berserk. Some stars are given out as praise, others restitution. A little north of happenstance, just east of where we'd like to be, a little west of what's in store and south of expectation. What does Bird think when he sees the real thing, the stars up above, that burning far away, but bright enough to see? Thanks, Michael. Sure. With, with that poem, mm-hmm. how, when, when you wrote that, like, mm-hmm. how, I wonder how we were talking... It was so lovely. So I don't mean to now make it into some sort of practical no, conversation. It. It's all good. Actually. It's all fair game. Um, but now I am. Okay. Go for it, <laughs> well, it was too. lovely. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, because you said um, that these po- poems, since they were with you and you've been working on them for quite some time, mm-hmm. then they, you also resaw them. Like you literally revisioned them at different points. Mm-hmm. Was this one of those poems? Like was there like a like some transformative moment at some point where you saw it in a different way? That's a great question. I mean, I think in a way, um, I can't, this, and this is one of the older ones. This is a, this is a fairly old poem. So it was early on in, um, you know, in, in this, in, in this decade long project, I guess, I think I think the the joining or the juxtaposition of this these actual pewter stars these these you know the, this object that I had that From was your, my your yeah uncle. that was my my was my grandfather's oh your grandfather's right, right? yeah no it was my grandfather's and then you know somehow always having those around like I literally have them in the room that I write I have sort of a, a you know a shelf that's got these various objects, these sort of ephemera and these things that are, you know, from my life and, and the stars are sitting there. Um, but it wasn't until I just sort of randomly was, um, in a library and reading about exploration and reading about period and reading about bird that something clicked. And I thought, well, I had, uh, you know, I, it's not like I started a poem about my grandfather or anything like that, but somehow or other it just evolved into this thing where suddenly I felt like I had some material and it's not like there are necessarily personal references in there, but, um, that sort of very personal, connection to that object then I think was fueled by whatever I was reading. And that's that's a big part. That's often when these discoveries take place. I don't know if it works that way for you as a writer, but when, you know, I'll have some things that I'll be sort of obsessed with and it's not until it bumps up against something else that suggests itself as a possible vehicle or as a possible cousin to sort of put down on the page with it. That is sort of that's part of the fun and that's part of the play of poetry for me is finding these juxtapositions to sort of work out uh, and generate things. So Mm. And is and were you also for this poem, you you said you were randomly reading, (laughs) but then did you when you started feeling that there were these connections, did you do more research or was it just from what you had happened to read that then these narrative threads entwined? I did a little more research and then and then it's sort of I think the reason why I stay I stuck with it and why I edited it and why I kept it for years was it sort of fit in with this idea of you know bird 
sort of claiming that he made this discovery. He, you know, he flew over the North Pole, but he didn't. It wasn't quite as fulfilling. There was still a void there, and whether that's fame or notoriety. Um, at least in my imagination, I'm thinking there's that same kind of compensation that, you know, for this idea of, of is he being noticed? Is he being honored for this? Do people actually believe him? And, and part of the history that's fascinating there is that both with Bird and Peary, people totally question whether or not they actually made their discoveries as they so claimed. So, you know, this idea of fame and wanting notoriety and wanting to discover things, wanting to find things, that's that somehow, maybe loosely, um, but it, it feels like it sort of links up with this idea of, of, of a void and a compensation and compensating for something. So, Well, this book, Void and Compensation, is now in the world. It is part of the world, Michael Moores. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking with me today. Oh, and T, it's been a great pleasure. Thanks for having me. Come back anytime. All right, I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> tomorrow, <laughs> Michael Moores will be reading at UMA, 5.10 p.m. for the Zell Visiting Writers Series with Emily Wilson, uh, also Canarium books, The Great Medieval Yellows. Today, you've been hearing Michael Moore's read from Void and Compensation. I'm T. Hetzel. Thanks for listening. Baby, when I think about you, I think about Without love